Are we ready for one of the more unusual parts of the pastoral epistles? I think we've already seen when we hit 1 Timothy chapter 2 that you can hit some very strange areas. Uh, people will jump upon, for example, the women keeping silent, but they ignore before and after, where he talks about jewelry and what they do with their hair and that they will be saved through childbearing, which you just don't hear a lot of sermons on that anymore um, or, or ever. And here we are in First Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 9, and what Paul is doing is giving Timothy regulations about how to treat widows and others in situations that you and I do not face. These, this whole context is very, very foreign to us. And so to try to take these and apply them to our context would be foolish. And certainly Paul would give entirely different instructions to us than he did to Timothy, because our worlds are completely different. Most of you are watching in English-speaking countries, uh, primarily the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, uh, some in Australia. We, um, we have others, I'm sure, but my, here's my point. In these countries, there's something called a social safety net. And we can argue about its existence and how effective it is all day long if you wish, but you'll do that with someone else because I'm not interested. But it means that uh, there's social security, there's Medicaid, there's Medicare in, this, in the US. There are, um, used to be food stamps, now it's on a card that they can use, the poor can use, or those whose income that does not sufficiently provide for their family. There are all sorts of uh, programs for food and medicine and the like. And they differ by country and somewhat by state, but they're all in place. None of that was in place where Paul was. None of it. If you were poor and you couldn't eat, you, you became a beggar, you enslaved yourself if somebody would have you, or you died. And those are your options. And if you happen to be an older woman, and back then a woman living into her 50s was quite an older woman because people died sooner and did not have the health care and the hygiene that we've got today. So you're, let's say that you're a 60-year-old woman, which would be probably equivalent to 90 today at least, and that you are poor, you have zero income. Well, then, unless you can find somebody who just out of pity hands you food, you are going to die. Unless you're a Jew. The Jews had a system where everybody paid into a common pot and that money was then used to care for their people. And it was developed through God's direction and Moses's direction and such through Deuteronomy, through Leviticus. <coughs> it was more or less observed. Some things were added to it. Some things were taken from it. Some great ideas we never see ever being used. For example, the year of Jubilee. I've heard a lot of great sermons on the year of Jubilee, but there is no history in scripture and no mention in scripture of them ever observing a year of Jubilee. And we can't find it in any other sources either. So a lot of good ideas, but they did follow through in the main for paying into a widow's fund. And therefore, when the widows needed it, the money was there. 
Well, Christianity was not just a religion of the Jews, although it was primarily a religion of the Jews at first. It became and was intended to always be a religion for whosoever will may come. And so the Gentiles, the, door, the doors are open and they're flooding in because they want Jesus too. They want a Messiah too. That's good news. I am baptizing 3,000 on one day, all of those that have been Jews, back in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. These are, these are great things. But whenever you start bringing in all of the Gentiles, you're also bringing in their history and their customs and the lack of certain customs. They didn't have a widow's fund. They had not been saving for the widows. Now some of them become widows. How do, you, how do you take from money that was dedicated for the Jewish widows and now hand it over to people who didn't save? This reallocation of funds is, um, is a very, very touchy subject. Let's say that you have people in your family living on a fixed income. I'm 65. Uh, I don't get Social Security and won't. And, and so I'll have to rely upon whatever savings I'm able to, to lay aside and whatever work I can get. But I have a mother uh, her, and she does get Social Security. It's a very fixed amount. Very, there are some savings that enter into it as well, but she has her Social Security. What if suddenly the government were to say, and, and this is recorded two months ahead of time, perhaps they will by this time, say, listen, we've got millions of people that have come to this country that didn't have anything like the Social Security system. So to make it fair, what we're going to do, because we don't want to get into deeper debt. I know no politicians ever said that but we don't get, want to get into deeper debt. So what we're going to do is we're going to take money from Patrick's mother and give it to people who didn't save and did not work and put into the system. You know, my mother worked as a nurse and then as a medical missionary and then as a church secretary. And then again and again, she just went back and forth. Um, so she, she had a lot of social security paid in. But these people don't, and it's not fair. So we're going to give some of our Social Security to them rather than just printing new money and pretending like we have it and writing a check because that's usually what government does. <clears throat> if my mother were just to receive a letter saying, you had this amount of money this month, next month you're going to have, I'm making up numbers, 70% of what you used to get. That would be a real hardship on her and which would become a hardship on me because my job's to take care of her and I would, but that would be a sacrifice beyond that, which I'm doing, I'm sacrificing now. And that would affect all of things down the line. That's the situation that they're facing here. Do we, you know, we've welcomed in the Gentiles and now we've welcomed in the problems. So Paul is making rules for them. Should we read first Timothy and grab rules out of here and apply them to us? The answer is according to which verse you're looking at. Because some people will grab verses such as about elders and deacons and hold them up, ignoring the ones in Titus that differ a bit, as the gold standard for all people, all times, in all places, period, no exceptions, no excuses. But then they'll ignore verses before that and after that. And it's very much a cafeteria line, like a buffet. 
where you go through and say, I will have these verses, but not those verses. I'll take this verse, but those other verses trouble me somewhat, or they don't, they, it, you have to remember context. So we're not going to do that one. That's, um, I agree you have to rightly divide the scripture. Paul brings that up. And then we have to handle it aright. But I want us all to be honest that that's what we're doing. Because you too often hear people say, well, God said it, that settles it. You know, I believe it, that's it. Well, no, you, you run things through some filters. You're going to need to run some filters. We've done an eight-minute pre preamp here. Are you ready? Verse 9, 1 Timothy 5. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60 and has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, and helping those in trouble and devoting ourselves to all kinds of good deeds. This was, in modern political parlance, a means test. Uh, a means test literally means, do they have the means to support themselves? But this goes further. This is a characterological, a, a moral means test, saying you cannot put them on the list to receive food unless they're over 60. I would, I'd have all kinds of questions here. And that they have, she's been faithful to her husband. She's well known for her good deeds. So this couldn't be good deeds done in a closet and done quietly like Jesus is talking about. Uh, and bring, such as bringing up children. But he does say such as. So he doesn't say she had to have had children. Which is, there's a plus. Showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints. Does that really mean washing literal feet? It, it can. It really can, but it was an expression, meaning serves others humbly, willing to do lower work because uh, out of love and not, not for remuneration, but just she had a life of giving to others when she didn't have to and, and taking a humble position when she didn't have to, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good works. Just a real quick question. If somebody comes to your your, uh, your church, if you have a brick and mortar building, or if they come to you as a member of Ashsi and you've got a house church, or they just know you're a Christian, and they ask you for food, are you going to ask them these questions? No. The, the correct answer here is no. You feed them. Why? Because we do not live in the world Timothy lived in. Therefore, we don't grab these rules and impose them upon our, our lives or our world. Instead, we look and we try to understand the basis for these rules. And we'll talk about that in a bit, but there are more rules. Got to talk about the younger widows. Verse 11, as for younger widows, do not put them on a list. So there's no distribution list for them. For when... You ready? Okay, Paul, go ahead. For when their sensual desires overwhelm or overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. And here is where our friends in the Catholic Church get one of their verses that indicates to them that wanting to marry and have sex with your spouse is acceptable, but it is far beneath the higher virtue of staying away from sex and being dedicated to Christ. 
Frankly, I can see exactly where they get it in this verse, can't you? Isn't this a troubling verse? Especially since Jesus said, from the beginning, God created man and woman, that he would leave their, their houses and they would come together, that that was God's intention from the beginning. And Paul's here going, you know, if they just can't control their sex drive. To be honest, the word sensual here can also re refer to things such as wanting to eat. Uh, so, and you, but even then could be used as a club against them. They don't believe that God will, def, you know, will provide for them their necessity. Therefore, in their lack of faith, they get married. It is just a very troubling verse. And I've read um, several commentaries that try to really pretty this up. I don't think it can be prettied. You can let me know in the comments what you think. Uh, thus, by getting married, you, I, I just want to back up. I want to read this, this verse again, verse, verse 11, and slide right into 12 and see what you feel. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Friends, there is nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, that a widow is under a pledge to her dead husband. Never. In fact, the opposite is taught repeatedly, including by Paul in the book of Romans. We've already been there. If he's dead, you're free. You're free to marry. So what's going on here? It seems to have been a local and a specific cultural issue. The same as speaking about women in silence in 1 Timothy 2. This was a local, limited, but very serious situation of some sort. And we don't understand it all because we don't have everybody else's mail and we've only got part of Paul's side of the correspondence. So what I must stress here is that throughout scripture, it is very plain, ladies, if you've been divorced or if you are widowed, you are free. And if you marry, it is fine. It is not, you have not dishonored your pledge to your dead husband. Jesus, in fact, said there's no marrying or giving in marriage, so he's not going to be up there going, what in the world did you get up to? No, no, no. You don't want to be lonely, don't be lonely. You want somebody to, to be with, talk to, um, sex, if, if that's still part of the equation with your age and health, um, have meals with, visit you when you're sick in the hospital, love you as you age, go for it. It is absolutely fine. Paul here is not, is not limiting you. Something's going on where Timothy is. And it's, it doesn't seem to be going well where Timothy is. When we get to Titus, it gets even rougher. Besides, I'm sorry, the word besides here. I, I, I'm just sorry to read the next bit here. They, these young widows, get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, 
but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. Well, there's a broad brush, Paul. I want those of you that are getting hackles raised right now and feeling this panic attack that you feel like you need to, to defend all words in scripture as directly from the mouth of God, you need to understand something. You can defend that doctrine if you wish to, but you will defend it at the cost of the reputation of God. You will be demeaning, you will be besmirching the character of God to protect your doctrine. Don't do that. Just do not do that. Let the character of God be pristine and let that inform the way you read scripture. Paul could paint with a very, very broad brush. Uh, brush. And here he says, the younger widows, and he doesn't give exceptions. He doesn't say some, a percentage. He says, they tend to this. They're in the habit of becoming gossips, busybodies, going from house to house, saying things they ought not to. You know, I'm, Paul's just being very, very unpleasant here and unfair. And if you've been following the Monday mornings for the last year and a half, you know that we've helped you see scripture in a different way. I was uh, roundly attacked recently as being someone who dis deconstructs Christianity and who's a progressive. Well, um, I don't, I don't know if I'm progressive or not, literally. And by the way, that infuriated the fellow when I said that, because I don't know who's defining the terms today. But what I will say is I'm not deconstructing scripture. I'm actually trying to look at it the way it really is. Not the way I was told, but the way it really is. In a way, therefore, where I can read it and come to Jesus without besmirching the character of Jesus and his father. Look what happens next. Verse 14, because they're running around, so I counsel younger widows to marry. Wait. Didn't you just, didn't you just write, you just said verses 11 and 12, and now 14. To have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some, in fact, have already turned away to follow Satan. This is not going to be the cheeriest of weeks, is it, for midweek Bible class? <clears throat> I think it's a very noble thing to marry. I'm very pro-marriage. In fact, Paul just said in the last chapter that one of the doctrines of demons that Timothy was to watch out for was whenever religious people said they, they would forbid to marry, forbid people to marry. Paul got awfully close to it here. And then he pulled back and said, but I want them to marry if they, you know, because if they don't, they're going to dissolve into being these busybody gossips going from house to house. To me, this is, this is a false choice, uh, but I think I've already beat that horse. So I'm just going to let you guys ride around on it if you want to. But he is concerned. Something's going on. And Timothy knows what it is better than we do. This, I've already said what I've said. It's there, it's recorded. You can go back to it and you can have a look at it. This is not to excuse what Paul has said at all or explain what Paul said at all because we can't know. We only have this little section of the correspondence. 
but there have been churches I have been in before where the men making the decisions were merely mouthpieces for a couple of very powerful women who did have an underground um, communication going and they were running things ruthlessly and, and poorly. You know, women can run things as well as the best of any man can run them. That's not what I saw in these, these situations. Is something like that going on where Timothy is working right now? I don't know. I don't know. But even if it was, you and I in this day and age would not have written these words because we don't believe it's wrong to marry. We don't believe you're breaking a pledge when you marry. Well, he goes further. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now, that's another really, really rough one. And I'm not sure why he is speaking to only women to be caregivers to widows. Uh, it could be that he means in that close personal contact way of woman to woman. I will say this. Um, I do believe that the obligation to care for my 91-year-old mother is on me, not on the state. I was always told when I was a boy, Social Security would not survive, not another decade, not another two decades. It was kind of like the, the climate change end of the world people. They always shove it out a little bit further. And they might be accurate, but they keep moving the date, which makes people question. Well, the same with Social Security. But let's just say the government said, you know something, we just had a look and we can't do this. We're done. What would I do? Well, my mother's in assisted living now and her Social Security plus her accumulated savings that they really worked hard and they denied themselves all their lives to have enough so she's in a comfortable assisted living. If Social Security went away, she wouldn't be able to afford that. So what would I do? I would bring her in my home. My wife and I are both in our 60s and my wife has serious mobility issues. This would be a real struggle, but it's my job to take care of her. It's my job to work extra years to make sure that she is comfortable because that's the way God set up the system. And it's, a, it's fair and right and moral. And I'm, I would be, I'm not going to say happy to do so, but I'd be happy to do so. Do you really, you get what I understand there? You know, everybody would like to have just time to watch television or ride your motorcycle and, and, and eat bonbons on the back deck. But if you sacrifice your time and your money for a good cause, especially for a parent who has loved you and you want to love them back, then you're happy to do it. You get the point? Hope you do. What he's saying here is if you have the means to take care of your own family, don't ask the church to do it. You do it. And I think that's right. I would not, if my mother lost Social Security, and moved into my house, then go to Oshsi and say, need you guys to give me more money so I can put her back in assisted living. I would, no, because I have the means right now to feed her and protect her and shelter her. If I lost those means, if I had a stroke and was unable to work or any variety of things, then I think it'd be legitimate to come to my church and say, can you help? I hope we're all clear on that. You do all that you can, and when you can't, 
it is fine and legitimate to ask for help. Is that clear enough? If, if you have questions, info at rsafeharbor.com. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, now again, these were not, um, and David Lipscomb and, and other scholars back through the centuries have debated whether or not this is an office or whether this is just the way these people are. In other words, by life experience, they're looked upon as leaders or elders, bishops of the church. Or is it an office which is formally confirmed, uh, conferred rather upon an, another individual? Actually, I see arguments for both sides, so I'm, not, I'm just not going to die on either of those hills. So the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. By the way, the word there, double honor, always infers wages. In other words, if somebody is working for your church and leading, you should pay them. And then he goes and dips back into the Old Testament, uh, back in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, to show that this has been a long-time rule of God. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Well, what, muzzling the ox? You'd have two big stones. I've got to watch my camera small there. Two big stones, round stones. And you would have oxen pull around in a circle, and this top stone would, would move, grinding against the bottom one. And that's where you'd put the grain. And so it would grind the grain out. Now, whenever you're grinding or whenever you're threshing, which would be a different work, it is throwing some of the stuff. You're losing some out a little bit far, far enough to where the, the, the ox can reach down and grab some. Well, because people didn't want to lose in even a small percentage of their harvest, they would often muzzle the ox. But God's law to the Israelites, and Jesus makes it very plain as well, is that when somebody works, they should be paid for their work, even if it's an animal. You don't muzzle the ox. That, that ox is working. It, that ox is doing a job. Therefore, if it sees some grain down there and it reaches down to get it, it deserves it which is kind of a cool rule. In fact, there are a lot of animal rights rules in the Old Testament that you don't find elsewhere, which uh, not enough for thousands of years. So it, uh, pretty cool stuff. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Once again, where Timothy was, was not in a good position. And so there were people, perhaps the, some of these widows going from house to house, I, I really don't know. You have to do, uh, this is inference city when you get to this chapter. Uh, it's a guessing game. Perhaps they were going around saying things about that leader or that leader or that leader. And he says, you, if somebody brings you an accusation, don't accept it without witnesses. Now, let me talk to you about church uh, leaders, pastors, your ministers, you need to know something which they experience a lot. People will come up to them and say, you need to know that a lot of people are very upset about this. Well, when you look around, there aren't a lot of people standing there. There's that one individual, that one man or woman. And if you say, well, who's upset? Every single time they will say, well, 
I'd rather not give you names. We're not trying to do all that. I just thought you should know. This happens all the time. And almost always, when they say a lot of people, they mean them, maybe their spouse, maybe a couple of the people that they do stuff with. I can remember one church that I served, a man would come with a list of songs saying, we never sing these songs anymore. And a lot of people want these songs back in the rotation. For years, we said, could you bring some of these people in so we could talk to them? No, they don't know. For years and years and years, I was here almost 10 years. And that's, that list kept coming back, same person. A lot of people, a lot of people are very unhappy. And one person's all that was there. Um, general good rule is, if the people who are angry won't show up to talk, then they don't get a voice. If you're upset about something enough to where you want somebody to correct the minister, you need to be showing up. And I'm not looking for a mob showing up. Nobody wants that. But it would be nice to know. You could sign it. Everybody signed the list. And you know, you got 40, 50 signatures. I'd be going, you know, I'm going to take this seriously. But you need witnesses. And the reason is so that people won't make false accusations. Now, sadly, horrifically, this is used against women in many countries in the Middle East today whose religion takes the word of a man but doesn't take the word of a woman. And if a woman is raped and she brings an accusation against her rapist and she doesn't have three to five witnesses to the rape who will testify or the only testifiers, the only ones that will back her up are a couple of women whose voice is not honored in the court, Sharia law will kick it out. Often, in some of these places, the woman is then lashed publicly or stoned for making an accusation against the man. I don't know of, of much else in this world that's as horrible as that, that's as evil as that. That's not what Paul is saying. He didn't say two or three men, two or three women, just two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly. Now, why? Why? Why, if I sin, are you to rebuke me publicly? It is not to shame me. Shame is not part of our, 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 our faith. It is not to beat me down. It is to do two things. The first you can guess at. One is to call me to a better level of behavior. That one I think everybody gets, right? But you know the second reason? You're to do it publicly in case you were the one that was wrong. Uh, I'm going to do a silly example, and then we're going to pull back and stop because we're already over 31 minutes, and we try to keep this between 30 and 35, okay? Silly example. Um, I remember the man's name was David. Nice guy. And one Wednesday night, because our church had uh, Wednesday night Bible classes for all ages, uh, people were arriving at the building, and I was walking down the, um, the hallway, and here comes David. And I said, hey, David, how are you doing? He went, oh, just walked right past me. I was going, what? Well, I found out later. Somebody said, I don't, well, I can't believe David's here tonight. And I'm going, why? And they said, because he just had a root canal a couple hours ago. 
what if I'd gone to David? What if I'd thought in my heart, David is being rude. He's being unkind. He's not bringing a good reputation to God. I need to rebuke him. So I go to David publicly because I'm and say, David, I said hello to you. And you just mumbled and looked away and, and frowned as you passed me. That was unkind. The people around me could say, Patrick, duh, you're the one who's wrong, not David. So you see how that rebuke publicly is to put yourself at risk that your own sin be pointed out or your error in reading the situation is pointed out. So that's a pretty valuable thing. So when you rebuke, do it publicly and carefully and sweetly because you don't know if you've just thrown the person across the room a weapon to throw back. So be very kind. And don't be in the rebuking business unless you have to be. Okay? All right. Got to quit. Next week, we will start the grand month of November, right? So I think that's where we are in our, our calendar with um, the rest of chapter five. And we'll get into chapter six. See if we finish it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all of you who give because you keep us alive. Literally, you pay our bills. Thank you. If you want to know more about our beliefs or how to give, or if you can make a recording for us, a greeting, communion, reading, uh, any of that sort. We love that sort of thing. Go look how to do all this and, and play with the interactive map, which is the most fun thing out there at uh, oursafeharbor.com. For those of you over 50, www.oursafeharbor.com. Have a great week.